This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Mike, so in your experience moving from Seek to Redbubble, how do you look at the fundamental differences between the two marketplaces? Yeah, look, they are, while they're both digital marketplaces, they are quite different um, in a whole number of aspects. I think that classifieds marketplaces are a, are a unique beast onto their own, whereas Redbubble, which is a in one sense, an, e- uh, an e-commerce platform for consumers, but it could also be viewed as an artist services platform and then, we, and then the fulfillment and logistics third-party network on top of it. So you've got a, a two-party marketplace on for Seek versus Redbubble, which is a three-party, which is much more of a three-sided marketplace to a lot of degrees. So they are quite different and there's some really interesting differences with the nature of the content as well with, you know, Seek had a smaller corpus of, of ads that were perishable and, and refreshed basically every 30 days, whereas Redbubble has some, you know, 60 plus million pieces of content across, you know, 100 odd different products. You know, we're talking about three or four billion SKU combinations that are all non-perishable, that are all arguably evergreen. So it's very, they are quite different, but they're still both digital marketplaces. So there are some, some things that are similar. How does that difference in content impact the business how do you look at that difference it makes significant differences particularly to you know one of the big strengths of red bubble is is the long tail content and the advantages that that has around both from a from a moat perspective a competitive moat but also for what it flows into long tail seo and and, and and sem makes that a much more important part of the business makes the optimization challenges more important, you know, fundamentally part of the business, makes the business more impacted by, you know, relatively small tweaks to an SEO algorithm can have, you know, significant effects because we place so much in long tail and so little in head terms for those into those areas. So it re- that's, that's, that's the part that really impacts it. The positive part for me, you know, as I've talked about a bit, is that that, that content library, that's just such a wonderful defensive element and this unique competitive advantage that you can't just throw money at to replicate you know that's the part of the business that i think is really a great base to to build off and we can get onto that in a moment but just on given that seek like you said have a small corpus of effectively business customers uploading content in ads redbubble have the artists how how do you think this changes the philosophy of the company yeah, look, it's re- it is really interesting because definitely Redbubble's history is in serving artists. I mean, that's what the platform does. It, you know, it serves artists, it helps them monetize their passion, it enables them to sell products featuring their designs. So thinking about the artist has been fundamental and effectively not monetizing the artist, whereas in, whereas in uh, the seat context, the hirer, the person placing the job ad, they were the customer you were selling to that you were generating revenue revenue off and you would look at it from an account management perspective. That said, one of the things that we're starting to do now in, in, in Redbubble, and we've really brought this from the T public business, is to start to think of our artists and at least manage them from more of an account management perspective in terms of tiering them, giving them different levels of service 
potentially thinking about when we onboard them where they you know where they fit that's kind of obvious and has been done in in some ways but we're really trying to increase that that account management philosophy that we can bring to you know really the top selling artists and then the middle tier and then the broader and just and having you know a more specific focus on what's the level of you know service what's a little proactive service that we should be giving to those different tiers of artists but you know our goal is always to align ourselves with the artist as opposed to monetize the artist. It's the consumer who pays. So you have to think about the consumer, whereas in the seat context, the job seeker never paid, right? And the job, um, so it, there are fundamental differences that I've had to get my head around. Yeah. It's completely different. It's, it's almost like reverse in a way. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so how do you think these new artist services could improve the stickiness or relationship you have with the artist? Yeah, so stickiness really hasn't been um, a huge issue in terms of artist retention. Uh, retention's really, really high. What we want to continue to work on, though, is artist engagement. So making sure that artists are coming back and have an incentive to come back to the site, to curate their work, to apply their work to new products. So when a new product comes on, like we've just launched hats. So as a new product comes on, um, their designs, their existing designs, don't automatically get configured onto the product, onto those products. The artist needs to come, configure it, set their price, and say they want to sell this product. So that artist engagement is really important. That you get good, you know, high, artists with really well selling content to come back and reconfigure and continue to engage with the site, as well as just uploading new, continually adding new designs, but also continuing to refigure because we do have quite a lot of new products. That while there might not be a huge amount of new new products. There are new launches, like a new iPhone case will come out in September with the new iPhone. You need them to come back and configure it and set the price and, and all of those sort of things. So it's really about engage. It's really about engagement. I'm ensuring an ongoing engagement and connection. And so, I mean, I, I uploaded an in practice logo and played around as you know on products. And yeah, it does take some time to configure it to each product to make sure the the, the image is at the center. So, what do you think? You look at technology to actually improve that, make that easy for the artist to to almost keep re-engaging. But when they also do upload an image, it can be automatically effectively configure in, 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 in the front, in the middle of the product. Yes, absolutely. And it's something we've talked a little bit about openly. It's not secret, but we're, we're working on a, on a new version of that uploader interface for artists. It's quite a significant longer-term product development, product and engineering project uh, that's in the works just to, to one, make it a little bit more, to refresh that whole experience, to make it a little bit more user-friendly, but also to guide artists more specifically about what products their image fits more specifically on. So for example, some artists will upload a circular image and a circular image works really well on some products and really bad on others. And we should be informing artists, similar if it's a rectangular image, works really good on some products, not so good on others. We should be informing artists saying, hey, this image based on its its resolution and its size works better on these products than on these products. So you can imagine there's that, that new version of that uploader tool is a very important investment. It's a long-term investment. This will take this is not a week's project. This is a month's and then you've got migration and all those sort of things, but it's a really important area for us. And we're quite excited about what that will look like and how it will help. It'll help artists, but it will also help consumers because we'll have better matches between the design and the product that the artists are selling those designs on when they come, when they come into the, into the site and start browsing the site. You mentioned how you know, historically Redbubble is all about the artists. Some would argue that there's not been enough focus on the customers, on, on, on the paying customers. So how do you look at this potential slight transition, you know, from a pure focus on, on, on artists to also now focusing a lot on the demand side and, and the customers at Redbubble? 
Yeah, it's, look, it's a really great point, William, that the heart of Redbubble, in particularly amongst a lot of the staff, is with the artists. As I said, that's why we exist. We exist to serve artists, to help them sell products. And the core job that the artists want us to do is to help them sell. And so the way that I talk about it with our with our staff, it's, it's not about shifting the focus. It's about adding the focus and recognising the core job that artists want out of the platform is to sell their products. And therefore, our job is to bring the consumers to the site, make them have a great experience on the site, find the products, find the designs they can buy from the artists, and then transact in a really good way and then have such a great experience they come back and either buy more from the same artist or more from other artists. That's our job. And so focusing on the consumer is not about not focusing on the artist. It's actually about focusing on the core thing the artists want from the platform, which is to sell products featuring their designs. And so, so yes, we, we're, we're trying to just get some balance, you know, balance into, into um, the way that we focus to really focus on, on all aspects of that consumer journey, not, leaving, not, not focusing on the artist. As I said, we're really honing in on the uploader and renewing that experience to make that better and investing in our group artist team. But recognising the core job of the platform is to bring the consumers to, to buy the artist's products. So, so yes, so it really is about balancing and bringing in, you know, more of those e-commerce practices, more of those e-commerce disciplines. It's really easy to go through the site and, and identify some areas where you might say that's not quite best practice from an e-commerce experience. How can we improve the site? To pick up maybe what's working on the TeePublic site versus the, Repub- versus the Redbubble site. Vice versa, what's working on Redbubble, not working on T Public? How can we cross pollinate good ideas? So, increasing our our focus on the core job of the platform, which is to bring the consumers onto it to enable them to buy the artist products, is really important for us over the next couple of years. That's what will drive you know, our step change strategy over the next few years. Is there anything that stuck out uh, stood out to you with T Public when you bought that that was unique, what they were doing very well that you could leverage on Redbubble? Yeah, look, I think the T Public business and you know, Adam, who has, um, you know, run that business for a number of years, he's a great contributor to our overall group. Um, you know, there's some things that they do that they do differently to their side in the way that they think about their SEO and they want the way that they think about their crawl, even some on-site things just, just with the way that they present um, sizing and, and other things in their apparel that we can, that we can pick up. So there's a lot of small nuanced things that work, you know, that work really, really well. And at the same time, Redbubble was able to take some of their experience in some of their paid acquisition channels that TeePublic hadn't used and say, hey, these, these channels are really great, um, have really great return on return on, on ad spend and, and think about these. So that it has been, you know, really mutually beneficial to both businesses while they actually still operate very, very, you know, quite separately. The businesses, um, I would say you're sort of cousins heading towards siblings, but it's not one business with two brands. It's a ha- we're a house of brands and a house of business in terms of how they operate at the moment. What's the rationale for keeping them separate? Well, primarily is is they're both <laughs> they're both growing quite strongly, and they're both pretty small. And our our focus for both businesses is on is on growth. And while there are there are specific options where we're starting to work together, so the group artist team that I talked about bringing in, that's actually a group team. It's been established out of T Public actually, because T Public were probably a bit more advanced in thinking about their artists in that fashion. But that's a team that serves both both businesses. So we're we're heading slowly towards some functions that are that are serving both businesses. But both businesses are growing strongly. They have different cultures. And our focus isn't on 
cost savings and efficiency, that's not worth the disruption that would happen from trying to centralise. They operate on different tech bases. They operate in different locations. They have somewhat different cultures. And they actually, most importantly, they have quite different customer bases. So that the customer demographic between the two sites is actually quite different. So you see that the content on the sites is actually quite quite different. And so there's we don't want to interrupt that growth and that focus that's more important to us at the moment than some potential cost savings, which I think we could always get down the track. You know, we want to focus on growth. The businesses are doing well. I don't want to interrupt that. And how are the custom bases different? Yeah, it's really it's really interesting in terms of when we look at who the core customer base is for Redbubble, it's a, it's a really interesting sort of Gen Z and Gen X combined. And, and the, the Grady way to think about this is imagine a usually teenage female and their Gen X mum. They're like the core Redbubble customers. When we do these deep, who are our most loyal customers? Who are the super users? Over and over again, we see these family units where together as a family, it's often the teenager who has introduced the parents to Redbubble through list making, and then they start purchasing for the whole family, for their friends, and away they go. And it's wonderful, and it's really clear. Whereas with Public, we see it's much more of a core Gen Y audience. It's a little bit more male skewed. And so what you see is the content that those two, those different demographics are interested in and even the way they want things presented um, is, is a bit different on, on, um, on the two sites. And so it's really complementary. And that's why we're continuing with the two brands, two businesses, because they're complementary rather than competitive. And so on Redbubble, you have the teenager and the mum. So... Who's the adopter? Who's the who's the lead? Who's the first in the door? Yeah, well, so so often it's the, often often it's the teenager that's first exposed, but it's the it's the parent who's the primary purchaser, and 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 that's that's where we've got the you know the opportunity in the work is to really help those first time consumers understand the value proposition even more broadly. So it's not just that they can buy a t shirt for their for their child, but they can also now, you know, get a hat for their husband, but they can get a throw a really unique floral throw cushion and they can get a duvet cover and they can get a bit of wall art. That's the challenge that we've got to communicate that CVP. And is the is the behavior, the purchasing behavior and the customer behavior very different than on Redbubble and, and T Public because of the product mix? and that exposure they have. Yeah, both the audience and, and Public has a slightly smaller product mix at the moment. That's clearly a big opportunity that we can work on over time, particularly get the supply chains working you know, even more closely than what they do. They, those, they actually do work reasonably closely already. The marketing teams, as you can imagine, work reasonably closely to make sure we're not stepping on each other's toes, particularly in, 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 in SEM. Um, but also with Public, um, it has less of a geographic spread at the moment than what Redbubble does. So that, again, creates a, a, a bigger opportunity. So more of Public's revenues generated in the US relative to, to, to Redbubble. So you can see these opportunities for both businesses to, to grow quite effectively and, and, and together, just not combined. Yeah. And so does Public leverage the Redbubble's unique fulfillment network? Completely today, or is it so? What you can imagine when the two businesses was, were were um, when T Public was acquired. My understanding of the history is the supply chains were completely separate, different fulfillers, different deals, etc. And while the two teams still operate separately now, now they start to work together. Um, you know, at least in discussions of which fulfillers are used for which products. You can imagine they can start to talk about rates, make sure that they're combining and there's efficiencies and savings that's just mutually beneficial for both business. 
both businesses. That's primarily at the moment, as you can imagine, mostly in the US and, and the UK. That's where the two businesses overlap significantly. But there's still real, there's still further opportunities for us to go in them working more, even more closely, more closely together um, as we as we move forward. It's interesting, Mike, that you mentioned about this house of brands because it's almost like when you get the scaled fulfillment network, you can then pick off and, and, and acquire customers from you know different sort core customer groups of different companies and then bolt them into your network and almost have different brands that use the same infrastructure. Is that how you're looking at the the evolution of a house of brands? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of ways to look at it, William. It's, it's to think about, well, firstly, who are the different consumers and, 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 and what are their needs? And then what's the brand proposition that's going to meet those, those customer needs? Now, obviously, at the moment, all of our customers are primarily consumers and we've got, you know, Gen Z, Gen X served by Redbubble, Gen Y served by TeePublic. You can imagine as we move into new geographies, do which brands translate into new geographies or do we need an additional brand? But you could also imagine potentially other types of customers where the third-party fulfillment network that the platform connects into could be really beneficial. Those sort of B2B potential opportunities, they've been they're they're in the idea bucket. They've been touched on a little bit, but they're all future opportunities for us. We haven't put down on our medium-term aspirations because I don't like to put down something that I don't know that we're you know that we're going after. We know we know that we're going to build our brand. We know that we're going to add new products. We know that we're going to expand geographically with our two businesses. But you can see how there's potentially other opportunities with given the assets that the business has or the network that the business have that could create you know further value down the track. Well, you could acquire one of these, you know, like you said, a B2B. I mean, there's one you know, for imprint or some companies like that that offer corporate products. Yeah, it's just, it, I think that, that what companies looking at that have to be really aware of, it's a very different selling model. It's got less marketplace effects. It's much more of a B2B model. So you'd want to be, you would want to be confident that we're bringing something unique in, into a transaction like that. Um, otherwise, you're just another you know, you're just another buyer. And unless there's something you're bringing that would really plug in and create real, you know, real value, that's where companies can get into trouble with with acquisitions where, you know, it seems like there's logic, but what are you bringing and what are you bringing uniquely? So, but you can imagine that there are, when we look at our universe and where we are, and we've talked about different, that we do want to be more um, proactive in looking at um, M&A opportunities over the next couple of years, you can imagine there's many, there's quite a few different paths that we could take that we do think would be value accretive. We're just, you know, we're not going to jump into something for the sake of it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll be very thoughtful and very diligent. We don't have enough capital to do, to do 12 acquisitions. You know, we've got enough capital to do one or two. So you want to make them make them worthwhile. And, and it was like you said, that, that kind of B2B account management relationship that, that these companies have is very different to what Redbubble has. But the scale of the network that Redbubble has would should mean that you'd be very competitive if, if not, a lowest cost player with the network. Yes. So I think that, that that's where understanding what is it that the company you're acquiring would bring, what do they bring and what are you acquiring versus what does the current group bring and do is that complementary? I think that that's, you know, in any acquisition, whether we were talking about something that took us into a new geography or something took us into a new business model or that something just allowed us to scale in our current geographies, which are all the different opportunities, um, any of those Again, I think it's really clear about what's the value creation thesis beyond, oh, they're just, we're just going to plug that in and that's going to help. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer that there's got to be something you know, pretty strong, relatively unique. Otherwise, 
you know, we all know that M&A can, can be value, dis, value destructive. I've, I've been, you know, fortunate in my career to, to, to go through a lot of acquisitions and investments and seeing some of them go fantastic and seeing some of them struggle. And it tends to always be when the thesis isn't as strong and when you really, we can look back in hindsight and see that at that, that, that point in time, the thesis was a bit, was, was a stretch or it was two steps rather than one step from what you've done before. And that's when you can get into, get into real trouble. What could that unique thing be that you bring to the table for, for B2B? Um, look, for the B2B, it's kind of hard to, to, to theorize. I think when we, when we talk about our, you know, our, our M&A universe, we are focused number one, on how do we continue to scale the business? Because we know marketplaces like ours in general get better with scale. So how do we accelerate the scale of the business to get to that next to that next level? Because you do you see margins get better, you see, you know, prob- problems are easier to solve and all of those sort of things. There's a couple of exceptions and I think anyone that works in content and user generated content, um, sometimes those problems get harder with scale rather than easier, but in general they get better. So our focus number one is how do we scale? Um, and then what? And then in scaling, when you're looking at a, at someone you're acquiring, what what would it be that, that the group was bringing to that acquirer to not just say, well, you're going to plug into us and that's going to give us scale, but here's what we can apply help you with that will genuinely help. And that could be, you know, hopefully the things that we we think that we do well, we think that we've got, you know, a really good. Um, focus on on our marketing and our different acquisition channels that we use as a really diverse spread within Redbubble. It's one of the things that I've been really impressed with in terms of the understanding of what comes from organic, what comes from paid, different paid channels, the focus on the profitability of those channels, the flexibility of the marketing team to move spend between those channels is really, you know, is is, is really quite quite impressive. Obviously, as you've talked about, the ability to have a third party fulfillment network that is in all of the major Western markets from day one and the ability to take, you know, take, you know, artists and content and then instantly take it from selling in one geography to selling across all of these geographies. You can see how that really could add scale to another, you know, to another provider and vice versa. Could the group bring content into an existing market to really boost the content library of a player if they're in different, in, if they're in a different geography, you could see how that could really help as well. Moving on to look at the user acquisition and transaction optimization, you call it as one of your core core points. What really drives this strong organic growth at Redbubble? Yeah, the organic growth is is a it's a great it, it's a great question because to me it gets to one of the hearts of the advan- of the advantages of Redbubble is that there is this really strong constant addition of new content and new artists that's just coming onto the platform and because the core proposition to the artist is you know it's no cost no risk to get going on Redbubble we do have this constant stream of new content coming coming on and what that what that provides is that provides a constant expansion of both SEO and SEM opportunities as that new content as that new content comes on so you've got to me there's this underlying asset that is constantly enhancing the you know the core of the business at the same time, when I look at that core and I look at things we've been open about, the fact that our brand awareness is actually reasonably low and our repeat rates have could be, you know, could be significantly improved. So not only do we have this, this ongoing new new library of content that's coming on that enhances the core, there's just growth from what we have through enhancing our brand awareness, through increasing our, you know, our transaction funnel and particularly repeat rate. So I see that like these core organic growth drivers 
for, for me are just really, really clear. And there's, there's years of opportunity there just by pushing on these relatively fundamental growth levers. Um, in, and that's just in existing markets before we get to, you know, to, to new markets. And so how do you compare that to Seek and, and you know, the, the, the flow there of em, em, employer pays to list an ad, effectively generates unique content, that drives organic traffic from candidates. How do you compare the two flows? Yeah, it is interesting because they definitely they definitely worked together to 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 some to some degree. In that sense, there's some similarity. I think it's a really interesting it's a really interesting question because what you would see with Seek is that there were you know there's different balancing mechanisms that when you know the the goal was always to have them if you had the most job ads you would get the most job seekers and if you have the most job seekers you would get the most job ads and it just naturally reinforces itself just so beautifully like there's just it's like all of those classified site they are a winner gets better it's not just winner takes most it's winner gets better and accelerate and accelerates accelerates away i think with a site like red bubble because it's a transactional site it it ha- it has the potential to have the same dynamics it's just not it's not as fast and it's not as simple where like it would seek the marketplace just reinforced itself and as long as you weren't pricing out new ads coming on then it would it would build and build and build and just had to be careful with not overpricing basically and and seek seek had this wonderful philosophy of always pricing you know low to to not to not do that relative to what you know economically it potentially could have i think with red bubble it's a bit different because there's no price to the content coming on what you need to do though is have, make sure you've got a way of communicating that content and that offering out to consumers to to generate that to generate that flywheel you've got to i think as a business we have to work harder to generate that and when you get one you know you get one consumer on then you've got to really work hard to not just get them through that first transaction but help them understand that value proposition so they come back and start to repeat and not and then also that they have a great experience that they start to spread the word of mouth and you start to get that little bit of you know virality going so i think there's it's it's we've got to work harder as a as a as a platform to really to generate it but it's definitely it, i think those flywheel dynamics are definitely there because as, as i've said we get better with scale and as you get higher scale you can have a better fulfillment network that puts you know manufacturing close to the consumer which reduces shipping costs which reduces shipping time which we know helps conversion the more conversion you add the more economics it brings which brings more artists etc etc so it really works but as a platform i feel like we it's our job to work harder and at the moment that's where a lot of the opportunity sits a lot of the opportunity sits there in helping consumers first be aware of our proposition then when they get on helping them get through that first experience but when they get through that first experience really where our big opportunity is to increase their understanding of the breadth and depth of the site and the multiple purchasing opportunities that they can have that's where really the big opportunity for us for us lies so that was a long answer william but i hope it makes sense because it was a really interesting question because they're, they're, there are different marketplaces it is and i'm just curious because it's yeah, it's almost like, like we said before about the B2B element of, you know, focusing on a small number of employers. They create ads that almost replenish constantly, which drives, you know, candidates. And it be, we've all classified models, it becomes unique. Where is the focus for you at Redbubble then in, in, in balancing that between, because it's almost like the artists are just going to continuously satisfy their urge of being creative and always upload content. You have to, you know, you're going to improve the services they have. But it's really on that customer side, on like you said, engaging them, educating them. So, what is it about the education piece that you can really 
improve on? Mm, yeah, it's, it's, it's an excellent question. I think when we, when we started to talk about this within Redbubble is what we want to be for artists is we want to be their first choice and their best choice. So first choice because the onboarding is easy and it's low cost, low risk. But then best choice in, is that the economics, the return from their investment and their effort is the best on Redbubble versus any other way they could go about monetizing it. It might not be in absolute dollars, but in return on effort and return on investment, it's the best. That's That to me is first choice, best choice for, for any artist because there are other sites and there's other ways, you know, that we know, you know, artists can open up their own shop on Shopify and connecting with some third-party fulfillers. They can do that. So why would they, why do they still stay on Redbubble even when they can do that? And we think because it's the, the return that they get, the relative investment is great. And that's what we want to stay at. And so there's opportunities for us to help artists get more out of their, their, their work that they're already, they've already done. One is, like we said, that engagement so they know to come and reconfigure um, products, um, their, their designs onto new products as, as they add. But then also, also, you know, areas which we can do a lot more at is helping them understand potentially where there are areas of demand from consumers. So different search areas or opportunities that we do see spike onto the site, yet maybe we don't have a lot of content content around. So that's not something that we do at the moment, sort of that outreach of saying, hey, we're getting a lot of spikes in, say, in one areas of nature. So it's really interesting. You see these different areas, pretty random sometimes these terms or something happens in society or in the community that sends an increase around. And what are we doing to communicate out to say, it's not just that we've got new products that you could add content to, but there's actually these new areas of demand from customers, that from consumers that isn't being met. So, you know, thinking about those sort of things. So I think that there's a lot that we can do around education, around what's being searched for on the site. That, that, that's, all, that's all sort of up for grabs, to be honest, that we could be communicating back out to, to the artist community. I want to talk about the user journey part and, and transaction and conversion. So, I mean, the way I think about the, the journey, it's almost like I'm a user, I search fluffy dog T-shirt, on Google, land on Redbubble, and then, and then almost go through the transaction. So is that, how do you think about really improving or optimizing that user journey from an SEO standpoint? So what's really interesting is that that intent-based search is, that's, 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 a, that's the majority of what happens and how people discover. So many more people enter onto Redbubble through that very intent-based process whether that's paid or unpaid or organic or, or, or paid versus someone who just lands on the homepage because they've heard of Redbubble and just start to browse and search. So where we're at the moment is, is you know, relatively, we haven't shared these numbers, but relative to other e-com sites, the first transaction conversion through that process is actually okay. You know, the, the, you know, the funnel statistics is okay. I think one of the challenges is if you go through that process and some of our research has shown this with post-purchase customers, is they have a good experience and they would happily buy again, but what they don't get through that very efficient process is much of an understanding of the broader Redbubble value proposition. They don't get much of an understanding of the breadth of content or the depth of products that could be available. So they know that they've just bought a fluffy dog T-shirt, but they, they don't know that they could get this high-quality piece of wall art or they don't know that they could buy their mum a beautiful throw cushion you know, that actually would work in their lounge room because we don't actually do a very good job in that process of explaining the broader proposition without distracting them from the transaction funnel. And so that's our opportunity. There's our opportunity in that process to better, to better inculcate the Redbubble value proposition without hurting conversion you know, very much. 
And then there's clearly a big opportunity for us once that customer has done that first purchase in how we repeat marketing to them in order to not just send them, which a lot, lot of what we do at the moment, we'll be sending them recommendations very similar to what they did, but actually sending them recommendations or actually more brand messages that help explain the broader red bubble opportunity as opposed to, hey, you purchased this fluffy dog t-shirt, here's 12 other fluffy dog designs, because that's probably what you'll get today. That's We should do that. But we should also say, hey, do you know, here's what Redbubble is about. And how you communicate that in a creative way that gets cut through and gets attention, that's one of our, that's one of our challenges. And that's where we talk about this experimentation mindset, multiple types of experiments with a whole lot of different content or inserts or packaging or upsells or whatever it is to get that better understanding in customers who have otherwise had a pretty good experience but just haven't understood the broader proposition. Well, how do you... So you'd have to collect data on the customers, you know, to understand what you could show them rather than giving them, you know, 10 other fluffy dog products, right? to, which, which probably doesn't convert them or reactivate them as well. Yes, yes. And, and but that's where, again, you know, there's elements of the business that need a lot of, you know, a lot of work. But, you know, with our, between our, you know, the CDP that we're putting in, our search and recommendations team, these are all relatively small teams. But that aspect is actually going okay. It's actually giving them permission and the opportunity to go broader and, and move away from their, you know, transaction repeat initial comeback goals and say, hey, well, let's experiment more broadly. Let's experiment more with a brand message. Let's experiment more with completely different designs. And then let's use our data, we use our, you know, data because we, we are at pretty good scale. We, I think we talked about openly that we had some, you know, nine and a half million unique customers. That's a big amount of customers that you can experiment on in the course of a year and try different things to see what actually drives longer term repeat. And now we've got a much better ability to measure that long term repeat and segregate our customers so we can run proper experiments and understand that. What do you think is the biggest challenge to drive and repeat use? <laughs> um, so at, at the core, I think that's the core problem to solve. If there was an easy solution, it would have already been implemented. Um, you know, when I go to the teams, often, you know, the obvious stuff that you'd ask about is is there. I sort of describe it as like there's no silver bullets. We just need a whole lot of lead bullets and we just need to grind and grind and grind. Because if it was one silver bullet, there's been plenty of smart people that have worked at Redbubble over the past 10 years. Someone would have discovered it. We've just got to grind it out. Every part of the user journey from when they first hear about the brand through whatever channel they do, through the whole on-site experience, and then particularly through the physical experience making sure that physical experience is awesome, that we explain to people why it might take four or five or six days to get to you. It's because it's unique. It's being made on demand, you know, which is zero waste. It's great for the environment, but that means it takes a bit of time. And then it gets to them. And when it gets to them, they get great packaging. They have a good unboxing experience. The physical product lives up to their actual expectations every time. And, and we've got some work to do there. And then and then there's something something in there that gives them the spark to come back. You know, so what's the insert? You know, most people know that, most purchasers get a little sticker, you know, a little red bubble sticker. That's fantastic. And a lot of people really love the sticker. And then what are we doing to drive it? So every, to me, every aspect of that user journey needs to be targeted, improved and experimented on. And that all will add up to repeat rate. There's no single thing as well as over the top. Investing in our brand, our overall brand awareness is, I think is, is you know, is really important um, as, as well. So I think all of those things will work in, you know, will work in t- together um, and repeat is just repeat rates and loyalty is just something we'll just, we're just going to grind out, you know, over the next few years. How do you look at the impact the customer data platform can have Hist- versus historically in the data and the structure they were using at Redbubble? Yeah, so, I, the, 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 you know, there's a few things that will really help for, you know, the core purpose actually was to help marketing create better audiences and, and better target, you know, their marketing messages and their variety of, 
you know, up and, you know, pre and post purchase marketing. And that, that already is showing real benefits and particularly, you know, with where the world is going and the importance of first party data versus reliance on third party data for marketing. That was a core reason that was actually a business getting ahead of where the world's going for, you know, a potentially a cookie-less world in a few years' time. But then the second part is the customer understanding, which is really understanding both acquisition costs, but also annual value or lifetime value of customers, and then being able to break that down by whatever cut we want, whether it's time, you know, the cohort in terms of month or week that they joined or quarter that they joined, whether it's whether they signed up for membership or not, whether it's the marketing channel they came in, the platform that they're on, you know, app, mobile, web or desktop, and being able to do all those different cuts so that we can see where are those areas of gold um, where customers through a particular channel or on a particular platform happen to be much more loyal than customers from maybe a different channel or a different platform. And that will really enable us to target our marketing spend much more effectively. At the moment, all of marketing targets on a first transaction profitability basis, which is what we've talked about. That's great because, you know, it's profitable. It's, it's good. It's very efficient. What it doesn't allow you to do is, is, is open the funnel a bit, a bit more on particular channels. And, and that's, that's the potential that it will allow us to do is the more that we can say actually that channel that channel has a much higher annual order value than this channel. So we're going to put some more marketing dollars. We can potentially go beyond first transaction profitable on that channel because we're really confident that their annual order value is significantly higher than the average or through other channels. That's that's some of the opportunities that I think it creates for us. And so how was reactivation done previously then? Was it just a simple email to previous buyers with with some offers or how was that really executed so remarketing is 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 it was a really important part for us there are multiple multiple um, aspects of remarketing obviously like most organizations um, both email and um, and display and remarketing display through through the display networks is is important and you know I'm sure any any customer from Redbubble will know that they get the follow-up emails they also get the display ads as they zoom around on the on the web they're important but there's also other there's also other channels that we've been working on um, for remarketing as well some of them you know some we'll talk about some we don't want to talk about because we think we're fishing in some nice ponds that not everyone's in at the moment and that's and so the team, the, the, the paid marketing team, they have multiple goals, you know, new customer and, and repeat customers. They try out different channels for both. How does this work for acquisition versus how does this work for remarketing? They separate and monitor the spends for those different, for those different campaigns. And that, like I said, that's one of the things I've been really impressed for a relatively, you know, relatively small marketing team. They're quite innovative in terms of the channels that they look at and, and how they continue to move. They're very happy to shift spend, you know, as we see as we see costs go up and costs go down in different channels. And it's very dynamic at the moment. The last 12 months has seen costs just move all over the place on a pretty rapid basis. So you need a team that's really switched on. Well, and I was always surprised that I didn't see any, you know, like you said, cohort charts or, you know, core lifetime value measures in Redbubble in the past. Is that... What was what's the reason for that? Yeah, I think it was a few things. So, you know, this is obviously something that I asked as well. Was just the confidence to to really stitch that together properly. You've got to be really confident in the various data sources. You've got to have really consistent, you know, both attribution models. If you're using attribution for certain channels, you've got to have really consistent data definitions. And as those have changed, it's made you know questions that well, this is what it looks like. However, these three weaknesses or this data definition change, which may have put that out. So. Moving ahead, and that's part and part of putting in our new customer data platform, is to really standardise that to give us much more clarity and confidence on the both the look back and the look forward data around that around those co around those cohorts. So that's something that we're now doing internally. It's really only been up and running for the last 
for the last couple, two or three months, um, relatively small team. So it's not something that we've wanted to share out yet because, you know, brand new platform, a lot of data sources kind of want to have confidence that that's really accurate. It's not moving. So I wanted, I didn't want to put that pressure on the team saying, hey, we're going to release this data externally now as well. So it is something that I think that we get to at some point in time in terms of externally, but internally, yes, that's very much how we're thinking about it now. And when you just think of the, I've looked at Etsy and other companies and their cohort charts, and and, and I think about the the core use case or the value proposition of Redbubble and the fact that it's customized products, you know, on demand versus maybe handmade or other stuff you can buy. Is there any reason in your mind why or how Redbubble's cohort performance or lifetime value would be different to other companies like Etsy? Yeah. So, so one, I think. Absolute dollars may be different because you've got different value items that are purchased. So the product, you know, product mix moves that a lot. So obviously, you know, we've been clear that apparel is, you know, is our is our largest range. We put out our, you know, our broad product mixes in our um, in our in our results. And so, you know, I know we, you know Etsy has a lot of handcrafted goods. We've probably got a, it's quite a few higher, um, you know, higher average purchase value. That said, though, is there's a breadth of purchasing opportunities on on Redbubble that we think about and and so when we see what our you know you repeat rate is we say well that that that's not a consumer who's purchasing for themselves and their family and their friends and their home and their walls you know and their tech items and their accessories so that's where when we focus on ourselves we say there is a lot of opportunity for us to continue to increase not just to be honest the initial and individual basket size to me is less important than the annual order value that's what i really want to move i'm very comfortable if someone comes on and their first purchase is just a few stickers which might only be a ten dollar purchase if they come back and buy a T-shirt and then they come back and buy a poster and then they come back and, and, and buy an iPhone case, that's fantastic. That's that's success. So we're trying to move the business from, you know, single transaction focus to much more around total customers, order rate and average annual order value. We think they're the right metrics for us to be thinking of. Like at, at the moment, it's a lot of focus around users conversion AOV, which is right. That's first time funnel. But the next evolution is to move from first-time funnel to customers' order rate, annual order value slash lifetime value, and that's an evolution in the, in the business that we need to that we need to go on. Well, you need the data, right? Like you said, to, to even yeah, and yeah, that's exactly right. Starting point, you can't if you don't have the data or you're not confident in the data might be the better way to put it. Then you stick to what you're confident in, and the first-time stuff is what we what we've always what we've been quite confident in for some time. But do you think there's any reason why the repeat rate should be different to say Etsy, for example, or you know, given that it's a different type of product? Is there any reason why it could be different or, or you know, structurally lower, for example? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm not sure. I think I, w- I would think in general, just given the size of their platform and, you know, we look at Etsy and think they've done an amazing job. When you look at where they were five to seven years ago and you look at where we are now, you go, gosh, gosh if we can go on half of their journey, we'll be, we'll be you know, really, com- really happy. So... So we had, and I personally have spent some time going back, you know, before I got this job saying, well, what journey did they go on? What did they focus on? And what can we learn, you know, from, from them? And I think that's, the, that's a, you know, a good way to look at it. But we're not going to be exactly them. Our proposition is, you know, is, is somewhat different. They've probably got a broader selection of products, I think, because of so many, you know, unique artisans that they have on the site. But at the same time, we've still got, you know, we've still got 100 plus different products now, you know, as we said, across, you know, sort of 60 million plus 
individual designs, that's pretty broad. So I think I think for us, we go we can be a lot further along than we are. And there's a number of really good at scale organizations who have shown there's a lot of growth, there's a lot of TAM, there's a lot of people who are interested in unique products. They're interested in reducing their environmental footprint. They're interested in supporting small artists. That's what Etsy and others have shown. And so the market's there and there's a huge market relative to what we are and that's what we want to go after. When you went back and done that and you looked at Etsy, you know what really stood out for you about why they've been so successful? Oh, look, I think that there was a few things, but I think that they were they were pretty clear on their on their ambition. They set some really clear strategic goals. They're very ambitious. They focus very clearly in on their core on on both the artists, but also on the core customer needs. And they were really focused on you know. And firstly, I do think they focused quite a bit on repeat. They were willing to invest in their in their brand, and then they're focused in a lot on execution. So you, you see them now talking a lot about you know. Customer customer completion and and shipping shipping times and all of these things that we know that we know matter. But the core of it is, I think they were willing to have an aggressive strategy. They were willing to invest in their business. They took some heat, you know, they took some heat from the potentially from the outside world for their willingness to invest for a while in their brand and in their in their internal teams. But then it really paid off because it enabled the business to scale. And what often happens with these marketplaces, as you can see, is they just get better with scale. And they, they were willing to take the medium long-term view, be aggressive with their investment, and it really paid off. And I think that that's, you know, that's a good journey for public companies to be willing to do. They were open that that's what they were going to do. They showed, I think that they did a great job in showing operational metrics along the way when they were confident to build that confidence um, in the business. And I think that's, you know, that's something for us to learn from. Just on, on the shipping point, I mean, how can Redbubble experiment with free shipping? Look, I think we're experimenting at the moment with a lot of aspects of shipping. You know, free is one aspect, but just lower cost in general is, is an important aspect for us and finding what that sweet spot is. Um, you know, free shipping has does obviously have a real cost to the business. So, so you want to be clear that whatever reduction in shipping costs you, you, we're doing, but it really pays off in, in value. One of the things that we're really focused on now is what impact does that have on repeat rate? Because we've seen with some of our shipping experiments, it didn't have that much of a change on conversion, but, the, but there's some suggestions what it actually does impact is longer term repeat rates. And so that need that means we need to spend more time because by definition, repeat rate loyalty experiments take longer. You've got to put the experiment in and then you've got to wait 30, 60, 90 days to see what happens, you know, 180 days to see if they come back. And so that's really on our radar for, for next for next calendar year. We're about to enter into our holidays. Holidays is our major selling period. We're quite a seasonal business. So you can imagine we want to experiment less during holidays. It's much more about execute, execution. Um, but that's right on our list for, for, for next year. But even before, even not just with shipping costs, just experiment and, and what the best, what can we do with time? What can we do with looking at the fulfillment network? Because as you said, the best way to reduce shipping cost is to have it closer to the customer. So as we get more scale and we can just bring on additional additional fulfillers, or we can local. So one of our metrics that we track is our localized fulfillment. So how many items are produced for artists in the same geographic region as the customer? Because it's when something needs to get fulfilled from you know the US to Australia, that's when the shipping costs blow out, blow out. You know, so at the moment, Hats, which we've just launched. So at the moment, you know, our first fulfillment partner with Hats is based in the US. So if I want to get a cap into Australia. You know the shipping cost is quite is quite high. So as demand builds and the content library builds, we'll look to localize 
production on behalf of the artist close to the customer. And that's that's the biggest lever for really quickly driving down um, shipping cost and shipping time because it's just much closer. Well, and also, what about multiple orders, for example? Does the fulfillers have always different or one product per fulfiller effectively? So it becomes difficult to kind of batch the orders. If I order a hat and a T-shirt, I'm effectively paying two shipping orders because they're coming from two different fulfillers. Is there any way to batch those orders at a node between them or how do you think about about that yeah that, that, that's all opportunities for our logistics team to look at so so some some orders yes they routed to the same fulfiller and that reduces that that reduces but there's opportunities for us to look at that so so yes ab- ab- absolutely but even then even if we can't batch the order i think there's a question though should be should we be rewarding that customer for having a large should we be incentivizing that customer by if they've got a larger basket size maybe their total shipping cost does reduce even if the cost to us doesn't that's just good customer service that's good incentives and whether that's on the one purchase or on their second or third purchase we don't do things like that at the at the moment you know, where it's overtly, hey, if you order three items, we just always reduce your shipping cost by 5% or 10% or whatever. They're all just great e-commerce experiments that we should be we should be running as a, you know, as a, thinking from that e-commerce lens. Now, whether that's worth it or not, I don't know, but is that an experiment we should run and we should try? Uh, absolutely. They're, and that all of these opportunities I, I see are on, are on the table. And that's why I get excited, Will, about saying, hey, we've got years of growth in front of us, right? These are all things to come. There's a lot of lead bullets you've got. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. There's a lot of there's a lot of lead bullets. Our challenge is, like, we're we're a relatively small team. You know, we only have about 300 employees across both businesses, so we can't do everything at once. And and my job is to really help the team prioritize, provide as many resources as I can, but know where to say no, right? Know where to say no. It's this, not this, at the moment because we can't be everything to everyone. We can't do everything at one point in time. What, what's what's number one? What, what's on, when you wake up? What's the What's number one on your mind typically, like in terms of the core factor that you're focused on? Is it back to the repeat rate, like you mentioned? Look, repeat rate will be a big will be a big driver for us. I think that when I look over a two or three or four year period, that the brand of Redbubble is so relatively unknown. And I would challenge you, William, if you speak to twenty people, hey, what does Redbubble do? How many people know? In UK, if you're only in the UK, UK is a big market for us. But so few people, when I got the job, you know, maybe five people I spoke to knew the company, but not everybody. So I think in the longer term, building that brand knowledge and not just through sheer spend, but through great service, through the combination of spend and great service and great proposition and word of mouth, that all of those things need to go together. So I think, you know, if if three three or four years time, See that brand, you know, hopefully I'll be showing you a brand awareness chart that says, hey, in, you know, 2021, we were here. And, in, you know, in that's, that is, we went back to Etsy. That's one of the great charts that Etsy shows. Here's our brand awareness through the funnel, right? And that's, that's an interesting thing that we can compare ourselves to today and say, wow, we've got a big opportunity here. Just on that point, like, how, do you, how do you compare Redbubble's potential consumer mindshare versus Etsy or Amazon? Well, I think we've got to be realistic about about who we are and our size and the spend that we can put in. Although I think that there's plenty of case studies where relatively small brands with relatively small spends can punch above their weight through being really smart, really targeted with the channels they use, targeted with their messages, willing to take a bit of a risk on the way they convey that message. 
um, to get that cut through. And the great thing about this world is if you can get that cut through, if you can willing to be a bit different, willing to take a little bit of a risk, we know brands can really explode beyond their spend. And I think that's the challenge for us. And one of the challenges for Redbubble is it's not the simplest value proposition to convey you know, in, in, in four words, you almost can't convey it in four words. And so that's a really unique challenge for our creative and our marketing team to, to work through. That's what they're working through now. They're trying a whole lot of different, you know, they've got the CVP kind of nail, but trying a whole lot of different creative messages to see what really hones it simply because it's not, it's not simple, but that's our opportunity. And that's what we that's what we need to do is find a way to cut through within the scope of the dollars that we're going to that we're going to have, but that's that's exciting, right? And like I said, it's not it's not impossible. It's not easy, and there's no specific formula. There's a bit of magic there, but you know, I'm hoping that that a little bit of that fairy dust gets sprinkled on us, and that's what we can do. Mm. It's also because hand, you know, for example, Etsy handmade is kind of close, similar but very different to customized or you know, on demand. You know, so it's. That brand, you know, the mind share that you place in the consumer is, is, is quite difficult. Yes, yes. But I think with, you know, all good advertising, there's a frame of reference, you know, and that and being able to leverage off that frame of reference of helping independent artists bring, you know, Etsy does a great job of saying, bring, you know, bringing humanity, you know, into their, into their everyday products. I think what's great about Redbubble is Redbubble can make everyday meaningful. Redbubble can create the specific items for specific people. And that's, there's something there that's really, really magical around the uniqueness, the ability to express yourself through your everyday items or express your relationship through design. I mean, that's, that was one of the things that attracted me, William, to Redbubble is I'd been a customer and I personally experienced when when you get a design right that says to the person you're giving that gift to that I understand you and I can use this design to say to you that words could never that I I know that you're into that game or that meme meant something meant something to you or you love mountain biking and I've just nailed you with the design that I've chosen. There's ma- there's magic in that. And with Redbubble's content library, help, and then we need great search and great discovery and all the things we need, but that magic's there. And that's what excites me. And then how can you convey that in a marketing message? And then how do you live that promise every time, you, you know, we help an artist sell a good and deliver it, you know, physically fulfill it? That's the opportunity is to nail it every time and convey it and build it because the magic to me is, is there. And, you know, I experienced it long before I worked for the company. And so you mentioned recently that brand marketing is more you know, fiscal year 23 rather than this year for, for Redbubble. What are the milestones or specific KPIs or structure in the data that you that you need to feel comfortable to start pulling the trigger on, on, on brand marketing? Yeah, it's a great it's a great point. And, you know, we haven't shared specifically what those targets are, but internally it's around focusing um, on our, you know, firstly on our on our conversion, on our conversion rates. Because what will happen with that brand marketing is you'll have customers with less intent coming to the site, with more curious, with more curiosity. So making making sure whichever that platform they land in, whether it's desktop or mobile, web or app, that that ability to explore, the knowing what to do, the conveying the the, the proposition through through not through words because you haven't got that opportunity, but through directing them to search, that that is working well for lower intent customers that they're, they're, they're exploring and they're finding items and they're adding them to lists or adding them to baskets and then they're transacting. I think that we really want to be confident in that, 
in that journey. So that's why we want to you know, we want to have a bit more time to be able to work on our search a bit more, work on the site experience and the user the user interface, um, as well as to be frankly, you know, give the marketing team time to experiment with the different messages and the different propositions. So putting both of those things together, and then also we'll give our CDP and our marketing teams more time to get comfortable with the analytics because this will be a different audience. Um, and being able to track that audience and give them that search and discovery experience um, is is important for us. And just what you mentioned how the app and you know app users and desktop. Do you see any major differences in the customer behaviour between those that use Redbubble's app versus traditional desktop? Yes, and I think what's terrific, particularly on the on the for Redbubble for both our iOS and our Android app, we do see higher engagement longer time interacting and that actually does convert into higher transaction volume and if you look at the app you'll see the app is actually structured quite differently that it's more around content discovery and then the product comes out whereas desktop and mobile web is much more product and then the content falls out and you would think and my assumption would have been well product and then content falls out would be more effective yet we see this very different and deep behavior on the app and so that's one of the other things we want to think about is do you push people to the app when you're doing brand? Do you pick up some of those aspects and bring that back into mobile, web, and desktop because they're much bigger channels at the moment? So there's lots of work for us to do. You can imagine we're not going to have nailed that, but to just do some more exploration before you really push the button on brand is, is pretty important. Mm. It's almost like a different product, it seems, the app and, and, and the mobile web. It's almost like a completely different experience. It, it, is, it is. It is quite. It's like an experiment within an experiment within a within a broader business. Um, but for customers who use the app, it's interesting though because onboarding is a little harder into the app. Like when you talk to customers, they'll say the first time oh, I needed to I needed to spend a bit more time, and then I started to work it to work it out. But that you know, there's a lot that we can still do to improve our apps as well. We've got a you know good small focus team working on those. They do a lot of customer research, and there's a lot of improvement that we want to do on the apps as well to make sure that's really the premium exploration experience for, for who are our best customers. Mm. And so, Mike, I just want to talk about product quality and range, the kind of final point that you have in your your focus. How You mentioned how earlier that you almost take an account management approach to, to, to artists you know, as an experiment. How is the organization approaching products and product categories? Yes. So I think this is something that's evolved and definitely when I've looked into the history of Redbubble has gone through different different periods through Redbubble's history. I think where we are now is we do have a really great range and assortment with quite a bit of, of breadth in the product range. We do, though, think that there are some specific categories and products that we, there are new ones that we could add to the site that would really give artists more products to sell, would really hit a consumer need. And so we will continue to selectively add completely new products at the same time though when you look at that range what we're we what we'll be increasingly doing is going back and looking at current products and refreshing or replacing or renewing those products so there's quite a few products on the site that maybe rated four five six seven years ago and it's still primarily the same um, what you call the blank you know the underlying product that gets printed on the blank still the same and so we you know we talked about one or two of these in the um, in our recent investor release, that going back and refreshing and changing, adding new colours or slightly adapting the style actually got us some really nice little uplifts. And so the the commercial the team that looks after this area, they've got to focus on new products, but they've also got to focus on refreshing either underperforming products or older products that we think should be doing better. And potentially, to be honest, retiring some products. We have quite a collection of like old iPhone cases that just don't sell much, but they're still on the site. 
and and just again good e-commerce experiences what while technically you've got infinite shelf space you don't have infinite mind space and if you accidentally serve up an iphone 4 case when you should have served up an iphone 12 case that interrupts the experience and that's not great for customers are there any core product categories that you think have the missing for Redbubble? Uh, there's one there's one or two but um we're not going to we're not going to talk about them out loud because there is you know we do have you know some similar players in the space so there's, there's a couple of obvious ones that the team is focused on you know hats was a great one you know to, to add because it was an obvious one that was missing but actually technically really hard to do because of putting the print over where there's normally a seam so we had to work with a one particular fulfiller in particular to to come up with a blank that could be printed on um, with the existing technology. So we're really, that's actually why we're excited about the product because it wasn't easy. And if something's not easy, it's usually, it's often worth, it's often worth doing. And it's a great, it's a great example of what the platform is. You know, it's, it's working with these third party fulfillers to bring new products for artists to sell. And I think that that, you know, it's why we're excited about that, that category. Well, when you compare the blank, the quality of the blank to some of the actual you know, vertical category retailers is there much difference in the underlying quality of the of the product the physical product yeah look it's a wonderful question and i think what where we we would be honest and say it's variable i think that we would say is there are some of our products where we're really proud we think for the price point for our core demographic we are bang on where we should be in terms of the product quality but there are others where we'd say for that price point for that customer their expectations of what they would be getting we're probably not we're, we're not quite there, and that's what we really want to focus on because we know that that impacts, and you know we we can see that in some of our data um, in terms of whether it's in um, you know the NPS from different products or or returns or repeat rates for customers, which we're starting to get a view now on what different repeat rates are for customers who purchase different products, and that data is gold for us to go in and say, hey, we've got an issue with product X. And then we can look at the blank and say, ah, oh, actually, the issue is the blank. You know, given the price point, given the quality of that of that item, it's not meeting customer expectations. So that when I talk about refreshing the, the existing customer, the existing product base, that's a core aspect to it because we know there's some areas where we're really, you know, knocking it out of the ballpark. But there's other areas we need to do we need to do better in. I mean, look at the fulfillment network as a whole now. I mean, what really makes that unique? Like, why can't this be replicated by another company? Yeah, it's a, look, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question, and I think technically the third-party fulfillment network, yes, technically, you know, it could be replicated. They're all third parties. Any organization could go out and do and do deals with all of them. Absolutely. So saying it's it's unique, unique, I don't think is is correct. I think what is unique for us at the moment is the scale that we can bring to those those fulfillers because of, you know on behalf of the artists and therefore. The deals that we can negotiate on their behalf, effectively we can negotiate a bulk rate on behalf of the artists, Then and therefore the geographic coverage and the product breadth that we can provide or, or offer to any individual artist is should be so much more than any any other way that they could do it themselves. If we're the and this is why scale matters, if we're the biggest scale platform out there. By definition, we should be able to provide the best opportunity for artists relative to what they could get anywhere else. Because while they could go out and do, do you know, deals with with other um, with the fulfillment network, you know, themselves, and nothing stop would stop them from doing that. They should not be able to negotiate, 
you know, as good a rates because they don't have the volume. The work should be you know, incredible because you're talking about a lot. You know, I think we put in our in our um, deck that we've got over 40, you know, fulfillment locations now. So there's work in maintaining that. And then you've got to maintain quality and SLAs and, and customer service and returns. So for us, this is one where I say, where I think this is where scale matters. And this is why our step change strategy of trying to Focusing on top line growth really matters because you create competitive advantage through your through your scale. But is there any reason why, say Etsy or Amazon? I mean, Amazon obviously have, they own their own network. That seems, but could Etsy come and do something like like this with their scale? Well, I think that I think that the challenge for for someone like a like an Etsy is it's a somewhat different business model um, for them where they actually start to do a lot of the services on behalf of the artists. So a lot of what the Redbubble offers artists is what Etsy asks the artists to do themselves. Um, and so it would be them needing to want to take on a different value a value proposition. And then secondly, just the image library. So, you know, you're moving into a different business model, moving into a different business business line, really. It's very different saying, hey, we're selling, you know, artisan-made items to saying actually... We're going to take on all. We're going to we're going to help you manufacture and ship and serve, do all the customer service for all of these customers on your behalf. That's a very different to, to me. It's a very different, a very different business model, and and I think that that's why there's not that many platforms that are doing what we're doing because there are real unique, uh, unique challenges um, that you need to put together. So it would be a very deliberate decision to go into something that's different, and I think that's why we see. You know, we see Etsy as much as inspiration more than competition, you know, for us because we sh- they've shown that there's a customer who cares about this proposition, but we do different things and we offer different purchasing and we're different business models and we're serving a different type of artist. And that's why I think that we're complementary rather than really competitive, hence the, you know, the aspiration more as much or more than competition for us when we look at them. What do you think is competition? Potentially. Oh, look, I think there's a few different aspects. I think there are, you know, there are a few other very similar uh, players out there who have quite similar business models, um, but tend to be more heavier into one or two product lines relative to what to, to what to what we are. So there are some direct direct competitors, and then I think that there are the what I would call the alternate options um, for you know for artists. Or, or group of artists, and that's the, you know, that's where you get into players more like Shopify, who might allow you to have your own store, and then they have integrations with some third-party fillers and integrations, and that's one where it's 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 competition because a consumer could go on and find them, but it's a different business model and a different proposition. But you want to be aware of it because you want to say, well, they, they, these artists have choices. They have choices choices around which platforms and how they want to sell products, and we need to be on top of our game and understand what those different choices are. And then, and then there's also different choices for consumers. So the other way to look at competition, which we're increasingly looking at, is who's competing for that consumer? Because the consumer not isn't first thinking, I want to buy something from an individual designer. They're thinking, I want to buy a unique design or I want to buy a T-shirt or a hat with a unique design. Where's all the players that they could go to? That's a much different competitive set. And that's where we've got to really lift our game as an e-commerce player because that's who we're competing against then. And that's the risk of always just focusing on what's the competition for the artist. You also have to focus on what's the competition for the consumer because that opens up the channels that we're in, opens up the marketing messages, forces us to lift our game, forces us to look at the quality, the end quality. So what, what's the customer getting at the end point in what time, but what price point? So we're, we're focusing much on that as we are on the competition for the artists because both of those things really matter. 
back to this point you made about the the evolution of of a pure one-time transaction focus on AOV and conversion to this consumer mindshare brand equity lifetime value for customer hmm. yeah and that, that's the beauty of marketplaces is you have to be an and business you have to be both right you have to be and and you can't be or you can't be oh it's artisan no no it's and it's both and that's what great marketplaces do is they know how to balance the needs of both sides of the marketplace and think about both of them simultaneously and hold two competing ideas that on one side I have to think about as an artist services platform, on the other side I have to think about consumers and all the different places they could go to shop that has got nothing to do with independent artists. It's just where do they buy a, you know, a cool hat? And that's great and that's the challenge and that's what makes these marketplaces fun. It's what makes them unique when they work um, and it's also what makes them hard to replicate. They're not they're not easy. <laughs> they're, they're not. They're, they're not easy businesses. Well, last couple of questions, Mike. I mean, at its essence, then, what do you think really makes Redbubble unique? So, I think I think that there's a couple of things. Number one, I spoke to I spoke to it before from the consumer perspective. The magic when you get it right. That that to me is that's, that's quite unique, right? When you can express your relationship through a design on a poster or on a t-shirt or on an iPhone. That's 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 to me that's unique. But what breeds that uniqueness is the content library. That's the that's the core, like really big competitive asset and moat that we think about. We think about a lot because that's what creates that unique that unique magic. And then I think then you put underneath that the scale of the business, the fulfillment network that the platform's been able to help pull together. The fact that an artist in Venezuela can upload a design. And then they're selling to someone in, in, in the UK or the US or Canada or Australia pretty much instantly at no risk, at no cost. That's, that's a brilliant thing. And we're helping, we're helping that person make a living is, you know, and, or supplement their living. That's a wonderful thing. So there's multiple aspects, I think, that you know, they're, they're business aspects, but they're value proposition um, aspects as well. As well as while we're a small business, what I love about both the Red Bubble and the Tea Public teams is there's a huge amount of heart in the organisations. I've sort of said that from day one internally. There's great heart, there's great care for the artists. There's real, there's real belief in the, in the mission, you know, of helping, of helping bring creativity in the world and helping in, independent artists, you know, thrive and, and, and monetize their passions. So those things combined for me really create a, a unique organisation. Last question. I mean, let's say it's, it's 2030 and Redbubble has, you know, only 1 billion or 1.5 billion GMV, you know, it slow, grows slower than expected. What do you think the reason could be? Uh, I think you'll be asking a different CEO that, firstly. <laughs> so they'll be looking back and say the other guy stuffed it up because I think there's a wonderful, I think there's a wonderful opportunity. You know, I think it'll be about our execution because the one thing, I, I don't have any question about the TAM. I don't have any question about these, these are massive consumer markets. So for me, it's about execution. You know, is, is, are we able to bring in the right people? Are we able to provide the right resources, strategy, direction, prioritization? Can we get the execution right? You know, and 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 that's that's the that's a great position to be in. And the execution won't be easy. We've got a lot of we've got a lot of you know challenges with small teams. You know, there's there's legacy stuff to deal with on the site. You know, there's new frameworks that you need. There's all that good stuff. And there's just the scaling, growing pains that any organisation has when you move past you know two, three hundred people to four, five hundred people, as we do over the next five, six years. So there's all that stuff. But to me, it's execution. I think if if we're not we're not going to 
we're not going to go slowly because the market wasn't there and it was all tough. It's, to me, it's execution, which is why I said, if, you know, if, if that's where we are, it'll be a different person because quite rightly, they should have bought in someone else to have a better shot because the opportunity is there. I'm sure you won't be, Mike. But I mean, how do you stay on top of it? Like, what's, what process do you use personally? I'm just thinking my stuff, you know, because it seems like it's rare where I study a company and it's just, it seems like there's so much low hanging fruit, right? I mean, we spoke about so much today where there's just so much opportunity. Like how do you personally prioritize and make sure that you have your teams focused on the right thing all the time? Because, you know, it, it, it's, it's difficult when there's so much to, so much potential. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that that's where it's not about, and then we're trying to, not trying to be cliche, but it's not about me. It's about me helping build a great team. You know, and, and when I started, we were missing two executive roles, didn't didn't have a chief supply chain officer, didn't have a chief product officer, critical roles, digital product and, and supply chain. So, you know, have managed to fill those roles in the last couple of months. We've got a little bit more executive turnover, which was expected. It was part of the brief. You know, we knew that there would be executive change. So one, you know, filling those crucial roles, going through the building a great executive team that wants to be here for the next four, five, six years to go on this next tour of duty in this next phase. Because I can't, I can't do it. I'm not an expert in, in, in all of these areas and I'm just a person. What I need is a great team and then what they need is great teams below them. So that's part of the change that we're going through within the business is we are at a new phase. We're in an investment phase right now. We've set our aspirations for the next four to six years and let's get a team right through the organization who are up for that journey. So that's the that's how that's how you do it is by just there's no way around having great people, clear strategy, great people, provide them with the resources. And and that's that's my job, right? That's my job is to set the direction, hire the team, provide them with the resources and the enablers to go after their to go after what they need to. And then make sure that teams functioning as a team, because in all marketplaces, you all work together, you can't be off in your silos. It all affects each other. And that's my job is to make sure the team works as it works as a team. 